I was somewhat surprised to find recently that the expression, make bricks without straw, had actually made its way into the dictionary world, being an idiom of someone essentially being assigned a task without the necessary materials to complete the task. Perhaps when you heard that expression, make bricks without straw, your mind went to Exodus chapter 5, and you recalled the Israelites being required by Pharaoh to keep meeting their previous quota of bricks without having the materials for those bricks being provided to them. But nonetheless, they had to you know, find the materials themselves and they had to keep meeting the quota that they had previously had, only this time without the materials, they needed to go find the materials. Now, Pharaoh was not an employer, nor was he a role model in any sense of the word whatsoever. But a lot of employees have found themselves working under employers who have done this kind of thing. Right? Like, I need you to get this done. Increase production. Drive up sales, perhaps without giving the employees the necessary resources or supplies or funding. Well, I say that to say this. God is not like Pharaoh. And God is not like those kinds of employers who call employees to accomplish tasks without the resources to accomplish those tasks. God, however, is the one who empowers His people to accomplish whatever tasks He sets before them. Now, those resources can come in the forms of promises or power. Oftentimes, they come in the forms of both. Promises, say, if somebody needs wisdom. You have a promise for access to wisdom in James chapter 1, for instance. And those provisions can come in the sense of power, having already been given the Holy Spirit. But God is, and the Scripture testifies over and over again, He is the God who equips His people for the tasks that are before them. Now, it's interesting, that's in Exodus 5, where you see Pharaoh say that the children of Israel needed to make bricks without straw. But in the previous chapter, we are freshly reminded that God is the God who equips His people for what He calls them to do. You might remember that when God called Moses... Moses felt unequipped. Moses had misgivings about his ability to speak. You see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. And so God graciously tells Moses in verse 12 of Exodus 4, I will be your mouth and teach you what to say. Moses, not being convinced at that point, which is an amazing thing to think, not convinced, he continues to protest to God, and God in His grace goes on to tell Moses, that he would provide him with Aaron. And then God even further, after saying that in verse 16, he goes on and he tells Moses to take the rod which was in his hand and that he would do signs with that rod. I say that to say God is illustrated to be, in Exodus chapter 4, the God who equips his people. I will be a mouth to you, Moses. And then Moses protests, okay, I'll give you Aaron and take that rod in your hand with which you will do signs. You are well equipped for this task. In like manner, the New Testament Christian can say, God has well equipped me. See, there's no New Testament Christian who should look at an area of sanctification in their lives, meaning an area in which they would grow or need to grow in Christ-likeness. There's no Christian who should look at an area of sanctification in their lives or a task that God has called them to do and say something like, He wants me to make bricks without straw. You can't say that. He's equipped you with both promises and provision. For starters, he's given you his word, right? All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable, 2 Timothy 3, 16, I'm going to go on through 17. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if the word of God is sufficient for the under-shepherds equipping, It's sufficient not only for the sheep's feeding, and that's an important statement in and of itself as we've considered in 2 Timothy, but it's also sufficient for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry, which is part and parcel of what God has called pastors to do, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. God has provided us, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So via the person of the Holy Spirit, via the Word of God, via the precious promises that we have, we have access, we have been given 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you need wisdom? James chapter 1, verse 5 tells you to ask, and ask in sincere faith, nothing wavering, and to expect that you will get wisdom. Do you wonder what you will say in moments when you are, say, perhaps persecuted for Jesus' name, whether it be in a small way or in a serious way, whatever it might be, then you can look at a promise like the one Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, that they didn't need to worry about what they were going to say when they were brought before synagogues and authorities and magistrates because the Holy Spirit Spirit would teach them in that hour what to say. I think that specific promise for them has a principle of application for all the people of God. Because the same Spirit who dwells in them dwells in us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, the benediction with which we will end this service in a little while, the idea of God equipping His people for every good work and to do that which is pleasing in His sight is part of the benediction in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. So I say that to say, no, you are not Old Testament Gideon, and no, you are not Old Testament Jeremiah, both of whom had very specific promises of provision and power that would come their way in one form or another, but you are a New Testament Gary, (laughs) a New Testament Maureen. Fill in a blank with your name. (laughs) And you've been given very specific promises of provision and power. And one of the things that we'll learn and observe from David in the section of this psalm that we're going to study today is that David shows us a great, uh, shows to be a great example of acknowledging God for the great provision that he has given. And I think it should remind us of the way that he has equipped us and called us to do the things that he has prepared for us to do, even as he equipped David for what he called David to do. So we're going to see that in a little while, but first, as we make our way into the text, I want to briefly remind us of where we have been. And to do so this time around, I'm going to review, at least to some degree, um, through the lens of God's people expressing David's words in their own words. Because we've looked at this time and time again as, you know, the Psalm of David, because it was a Psalm of David, but let us not forget that it was meant to be sung by the people of Israel. So already, when we're in verse 1, after the superscript, we can see the people of God are those that love God. Very first verse of the psalm, I love you, O Lord, or I love you, O Yahweh. Then we saw in verse 2, through David, that God's people essentially ascribe to God identifications that are emblematic of His saving work in their lives. You are my shield, my rock. All of these personalized ascriptions of who God is to the believer, even as God was those things to David. We were reminded that God is the God who hears and helps. He's God who hears His people when they pray. Verse 3, verse 6. The unfolding of which is seen in verses 7 through 19. And we see David recalling, which is good for us to do at times, to recall the ways in which God has intervened in our lives. Perhaps we worry so much about tomorrow without properly reflecting upon what God has done yesterday. And if we reflected more upon all the things that God has done for us yesterday, perhaps we'd worry less about tomorrow. And David is providing an example of that. He's just recalling in these poetic images that are drawn, that are drawn from history in the Scriptures as we've seen, and he's thinking of how God intervened on his behalf. We've seen how God, according to His perfect administration, often, though not exclusively, rewards the faithfulness of His people. You saw that in verses 20 through 25. His people are not saved by their own faithfulness. Note that, right? His people are not saved by their own faithfulness, but by His grace. But when His people walk, when His saved people walk in faithfulness, God will so often manifest gracious rewards in the here and now for that faithfulness. On the other hand, as we saw in verse 26, God will often deal with the crooked according to their crookedness. Right? Think of Haman. Think of Jacob. Both on different sides of the spectrum in salvific redemptive history, yes, but nonetheless, God took the shrewdness of Jacob and the deception of Jacob and He sovereignly used the deception of Laban in Jacob's life. And Haman, or Haman, was to hang on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. We've seen that God will humble the proud, 
and exalt the humble. It's a principle seen over and over again in the Scriptures. And finally, last week, we saw the hope that God's people ought to have. That no matter how dark your situation may be, that God is a lamp to His people. God will enlighten His people's darkness. There's no darkness that is too thick or too heavy that God cannot light it up. And then we saw in verse 29, He empowers His people to do things that they could not do on their own. More about that when we get into verse 32 and on. But we begin today in Psalm 18, verse 30, where we read, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. So David begins by addressing God as Ha'el. Literally, the God. The God is how he begins this verse. He is identifying God as essentially to use language from Alec Moitier, the transcendent God who is indeed the God. So it's as though David, at this point, you kind of follow the, the rhythm of what he's writing in this psalm. It's as though David recalling God's deliverance in his life, very recently in the text, he proceeds to describe his great God who is the source of all of his help and empowerment. To put it another way, David has described the blessings that he has received, but now, for a couple of verses, he is going to describe the fount of those blessings. That's what he's doing here. The God, the one true God. What we're going to see in verse 30 and in verse 31 are essentially Hebraic ways of declaring that God, that Yahweh, is the one true God. Now of him, David wrote, his way is perfect. Now it's important to note this. This word, perfect, is the same word that was used earlier with reference to David. About David's way being made blameless. We see that in verse 23 and verse 25 of Psalm 18. It's the same word, it's tamim in the Hebrew. When applied to men, the word blameless, which by the way, remember, is not the equivalent of sinless, is a fitting translation. So when you look at Psalm 18, verse 23 and 25, you're like, blameless, that makes sense when applied to men. It's not sinless, it's blameless. Above reproach, essentially. But when applied to God, or when describing God, or as it is here, His way, perfect, is a fitting translation. Unlike men, God never mismeasures. He never misspeaks. I go, I shouldn't have said that. No, every word he speaks is perfect. He never has to take a mulligan, to use a golf term. He never has to hit the reset button, like, oh, I messed up and I, I shouldn't do this, and I, let's just hit reset and let's just start all over. Even the flood was a part of God's plan. That wasn't him hitting the reset button. That was a part of his plan to show his justice and his holiness, among other things. God never mismeasures. God never mismanages. God never needs a do-over or a second try. His way or His doings. And you look at the language here when it says His way is perfect. We're essentially talking about what God does. His administration of the universe. His sovereign superintending of providence. His way is perfect. That word perfect, again, that word blameless, that word tamim, it's used oftentimes to speak of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And it could be rendered as without blemish. So the way in which God governs the entirety of the universe is without blemish. It is perfect. And we have to acknowledge something here, that God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 8. And there will be times in God's providence when God's people are tempted to murmur at God's providence. But our confidence ought to remain that His way is perfect. Now, some of you aren't familiar with, uh, with the story of how my dad came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It truly, I think, is an amazing story. Um, I was serving in youth ministry at the time as a youth minister at a local um, church, and it was the last time that we were gathering together uh, for the summer before we had a summer break. We had gone into July, and I got home a little bit late that evening. At that time, I um, was not married to Lauren, so I was still um, living at home with my mom and my dad and my sister. And I get home a little late that evening, and my sister wasn't home yet, and I didn't know where she was. I would later come to find that she was at, I think, Chili's. And when she comes into the home, when she comes 
comes into the house that evening, she walks right past my mom and I, and she has her hand over her mouth. And I just thought that maybe she was in a bad mood or something like that and just kind of walked past us. But then she comes back, I think, that she went into the bathroom and she had some like toilet paper or maybe some tissues or something like that. And she had blood that was coming out of her mouth and from her throat onto this little napkin or tissue, whatever it was. I tell her, wise brother that I was, don't worry, it'll clot soon. Um, what happened was she had had her tonsils out. I think at that point it was like 10 days earlier. Um, my words happened to end up being more prophetic than I realized, but it was not the wise advice in that moment. My mom, being much more aware of the situation than I apparently was, she called the doctor, and the doctor had said, get her into the emergency room right away. So we get into the car, and my, my dad is driving the car at this point. My mom is in, the, um, is in the passenger seat in the front, and I'm in the back with my sister. My sister has a roll of paper towels that are right next to her, and she's using that roll, and it's filling up with blood, and it's um, a roll of paper towels, and it's getting so thick and so red, it was disturbing. Now, in my, I, I'm a Christian at this point in time. I love the Lord Jesus. You could be a Christian and love the Lord Jesus, and you could still get in the flesh. <laughs> I think we all know that. And I happened to be frustrated in that moment. And what I was frustrated about in that moment was I was frustrated in particular with my dad. I was frustrated because I thought, you know what? We're driving to the hospital and what we should be doing right now is we should be praying as a family. So I was in the flesh, a little self-righteous. We get, to, we get to the hospital, what was formerly St. Vincent's Hospital, and we get there and then mom brings Michelle into uh, brings her into the hospital. They can't really do much in triage because I, I see a lady like through, through this little square thing in the wall and like nothing much that they could really do because she just keeps bleeding. So they take her into the room where there are kind of like double doors that swing open and now she's out of sight for a few moments. My dad goes outside and I'm sitting right there in the chair in the waiting room and I have my Bible with me. And I just happened to open up my Bible to Isaiah 55. And it was as though God, the gracious Father that He is, corrects my carnality in that moment. My eyes go right down to Isaiah 55, where I'm reminded that His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. I remember telling the Lord, okay, I get it. (laughs) I get it. There's something I'm missing here. I get it. And I'm wrong. I shouldn't be in the flesh. My mom... Uh, ends up pushing open the doors to the double doors where Michelle was. Um, that's my sister. And she says, come in, come in. We have to pray for your sister. It's late at night. I don't know what time exactly. It's around 12, uh, 12 a.m., something like that. Come in. We have to pray for your sister. So my mom and I get ready to pray for my sister. As I'm about to go and pray for her, there's a bucket, a, bu- a bucket that's a mixture of blood and other fluids that was so filled that as one person is moving that bucket, another person is putting another bucket because Michelle is probably throwing up and she's got blood that's coming out. So one person is moving a bucket. Whatever's in the bucket is spilling on the floor. They put another one uh, under her mouth and she's scared and she doesn't know what's going on. And my mom and I just put hands on my sister to pray. It was just a prayer of desperation as much as it was a prayer of faith looking to the God of heaven. And we prayed among other things... Lord, I pray that you would just show yourself strong. Would you touch Michelle? Would you show the doctors that you are God? So we pray, and then shortly after that, they wheel Michelle out to perform, and I'll tell you why I do this in a moment, to perform surgery. Because they think they have to go in there and they have to fix something. So we're waiting in the waiting room. It's late at this time. I don't remember what time it was. Maybe 2 a.m., something like that. I don't remember exactly. And my mom tells me while we're in the waiting room, she says, did you realize that when we prayed for your sister, the bleeding stopped? And I said, no, I, 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 I didn't realize that at all. Michelle, a little while later, comes out of surgery. And first thing that she said, and I remember checking this in the early days of this happening, saying, was that the first thing that Michelle said when she spoke to us when she came out? And it was the first thing she said, and she's still on a hospital bed at that point. She said to us, did you guys realize that when you prayed for me that the bleeding stopped? And I remember saying to her, I, I, no, I didn't realize that. And mom said that while we were in the waiting room. The doctor comes out to speak to us. And I'll tell you the quote, the exact quote that I had remembered from that moment. And I'll show you when the quote happens, when it happens with these two little things right here. It says, you know, we went in there to perform surgery, something like that. But here's the quote. Quote, but I guess the blood vessel went back under the skin. End quote. 
And then he says, so, so something along the lines, so we, we quarterize the area. She should be good to go home in a little while. Whether it was a half hour, an hour, I don't remember. I don't remember. He, the doctor walks away, or the surgeon, whoever it was, walks away. And then I say to my mom, my dad, and my sister, I said, the blood vessel? <laughs> like, the blood vessel that was just out. <laughs> like, it, it's just causing all kinds of problems. And then somehow, that blood vessel just went back under the skin. Like of its own accord? Like that's what happened? I'm like, this was God. I'm like, God heard our prayer. God touched Michelle. Next day, um, next day, I remember, so that was a Friday into Saturday morning. So the next day at that point was Sunday. And my dad came to church and I shared that story during the announcements at church that day. My dad's sitting there and his eyes are just welling up with tears. The next day he calls me and I missed his call and he left a voicemail and I'm so happy it worked out this way. It made it all the more epic in my mind. He says, among other things in the message, he says, son, I think it was basically, it was a short message. Uh, and he says, son, I want to tell you that two things happened this weekend. God saved your sister and God saved me. And it was one of the most, uh, my dad was awesome, an awesome dad. But just to see the way in which he got radically transformed. All of a sudden, it was like a smile that you couldn't like peel off. It was just there, a glow in Christ that was there. But it happened in the context where I didn't understand what God was doing. And I'm frustrated with what God's doing. Like, I don't like the way this is happening. My dad should be leading us in prayer. We should be doing this all in the flesh, all grumbling, because I didn't realize in that moment what we need to realize at every moment, whether we like the situations we're in or not, that Yahweh's ways and way is perfect. It may be above our understanding, and oftentimes it clearly is. But all of God's people would do well to bow the knee to Yahweh's ways and say, I may not know exactly what you're doing, but I know that all your ways are just. I know that you're working all things after the counsel of your will, and you're even causing all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. And then we go on in this verse, and after David says that, he says, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, is proven or refined. That's essentially what that means. So when you see that word proven, it essentially means refined. And like, well, what do you mean the word of Yahweh is refined? Well, first, by the word of Yahweh, we mean the special revelation of Yahweh, His word, that which is revealed in the Scriptures, as we know to be His word, and of course, how He spoke through, say, the prophets and so on. The word of the Lord is proven. It is refined. It is like gold without dross tested and proven to be genuine without fail. That's the idea. The word of the Lord is proven. It's been tested. It's been put through the fire. You know, the fire that would expose the dross. And it's been shown to be without dross. It's 100% pure. You might see some of those foods that say no artificial sweeteners, no artificial colors, no preservatives. When you would think of Yahweh's word, you think of no errors. It's 100% pure. His word is pure. You might say it has been tested by fallen man through fallen man's view of history and science, but over and over again, whether it's the nature of man or the evidence that witnesses to the wisdom of an almighty creator or a young earth again and again and again, God's word withstands all tests and it is shown to be truthful. It is shown to be trustworthy. Now, I think when we say that, we've got to be careful that we don't just have that as like a theological statement. You know, God's word is pure. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is proven. And I get that intellectually. We can't just get it intellectually or we shouldn't get it just intellectually. We should follow in the example of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 40, when he said, Your word is very pure. Literally, your word is refined or tried. Same idea of what David's speaking about here. Therefore, your servant loves it. That's where we go. So it's here, yes, but it doesn't just stay here. It goes here, right? Your word is pure. It's trustworthy. It is without flaw. Therefore, your servant loves it. And that leads to all kinds of things. Reading it, proclaiming it, trusting it, resting in it. 
David may be recalling, for instance, when David says this here, when you say, well, what does David maybe have in mind in his own life when he's saying this? He may be recalling how Yahweh's word to him that he would be king was proven truthful. Even though there were times when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Even though Saul raged against it, he knew it. He knew Yahweh had given David his word, but he raged against it. There was all kinds of opposition to David becoming the king. But Yahweh's word is proven. It is refined, as it were, and shown to be 100% pure. It passes all tests. You might say that God's word has been weighed in the balance and not found wanting. But David's own experience, by the way, and you know this, is just a sample of a much larger body of evidence. A flawless record of fulfilled prophecy is a definitive witness to the proven nature of God's word. Just to briefly expound upon this, which is, it's worth you knowing, um, the amazing testimony of prophecies fulfilled is one of the greatest witnesses, I would argue. It's not the only witness, but it's one of the greatest witnesses to the truthfulness and the trustworthy nature of God's word. To expand upon this, I want to reference a writing by Peter Stoner called Science Speaks, but I want to call your attention to something you might not have heard before, the foreword to Stoner's book. A PhD by the name of H. Harold Hartzler, he wrote the following in the preface, the foreword, to this writing called Science Speaks. He says, the manuscript, Science Speaks, has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members, goes on, and Executive Council, and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. So what you're about to hear is not pie-in-the-sky analysis. It's not like some, you know, hopeful yet uninformed Christian who's just trying to use like big numbers to impress people with the reliability of God's word. The material presented is scientific mathematical analysis based upon the principles of probability. Okay, with that being said, in this work, Science Speaks, the following probability analysis was done. For instance, for any person to fulfill just one of the prophecies of the Messiah, for instance, he would be born in Bethlehem, or he would be betrayed by a friend, or he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, for any man to fulfill, according to Stoner, just eight prophecies of the Messiah, the odds of that would be one in ten to the 17th exponent. If you're trying to do the math, you're like, what is that? That's one in a hundred zillion. And the way, the way he illustrates that, to, like, to definitively rule out coincidence here, it's as though God was making the fingerprint very definitive, very recognizable to say, when my Messiah comes... Oh, it'll be very clear that this one who fits the bill is the one. So to illustrate this, he talked about the state of Texas being lined with silver dollars two feet deep. And then somebody being blindfolded and then given the task of choosing one specific silver dollar that was marked with, if I remember correctly, something like a star or something like that. That's the odds of any man just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Just eight of those prophecies. Well, what about if somebody fulfilled, and I like this, because he goes on, and he goes on to say for one person to fulfill 48 of those prophecies. 48 of those prophecies. Like what? He'd be of the tribe of Judah. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be a descendant of David. He'd be preceded by a forerunner. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And you could go on. For any man to fulfill 48 of those prophecies, what is the odds of that happening? It's 1 and 10 to the 157th exponent. I don't know what that's called. <laughs> One in that. <laughs> God's word is proven. It's trustworthy. And there's all kinds of witnesses to it. The last line of verse 30 says, He is a shield to all who trust in Him. And you remember who's writing this. David, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And David was a warrior. David knew of the help and the limitations that shields could bring on the battlefield. He definitely knew about the limitations. You see that like when he is lamenting Saul and Jonathan's death. 
concerning um, what happened on Mount Gilboa, he said that the shield of the mighty was cast away. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 21. A little bit later on in 2 Samuel, we read that the shields of gold that belonged to Hadadezer weren't enough to ward off David and his army. You see that in 2 Samuel 8, verses 3 and 7. But unlike those shields, Yahweh's defense is unthwartable. Yahweh perfectly preserves the lives of all of His people until it's time for them to go home. Every one of His people protected, their lives preserved until it's time for them to go home. Now earlier, David said uh, that Yahweh was His shield. He used the expression, my shield. But what he said there was personal. Now what he says is a principle. Right? He is my shield, he says earlier in the psalm, but now it's a principle. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. It's great news for everyone who trusts in Him. And again, we keep seeing this in the Psalter, but I want to remind you that that verb here, to take refuge in, or that verb to trust, is essentially the verb that means to take refuge in. What does it mean to trust the living God? It means to take refuge in Him. It means to run to Him. More about that a little bit more at the end of our... Um, consideration of verse 31. Let's go to verse 31. Verse 31 says, For who is God except the Lord or except Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? So this is a statement of monotheism. The belief that there is only one God. And this is a celebration of David's confession of faith. For who is God except the Lord or except Yahweh? He's using a singular form of the word Elohim. So for who is, singular form of Elohim, God except the Lord? It's just good to be reminded that all the idols of this world, whatever idols they may be, they are the product of men's fallen minds. They are the results of doctrines of demons. That's what they are. Whatever title they bear, whatever images they carry. The idols of this world are but wood or gold or silver or brass. They are all fictional. Not one of them is actual. They are either deified creatures or they are fictional creations. Yahweh is the only true God. Yahweh who is one in essence. Yahweh who is three in persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yahweh is eternal and uncreated. And not only is Yahweh the only God, but He is the only rock. And who is a rock except our God? And I love this. The the idea of Yahweh being a rock to His people, if you want to just see that expounded upon, you go to Deuteronomy 32 and you'll see it referenced over and over again. Yahweh is a rock to His people. You look at Deuteronomy 32 and it appears that the other nations called their gods rocks as well. You know, maybe perhaps Baal is our rock. But you see in Deuteronomy 32, their rock is not like our rock. (laughs) The idea is that Yahweh is the one true God who can save. He can provide support and protection for His people and He is the only one who is able to preserve and protect His people. Now, someone might be saying at this point, somebody might be saying, okay, wait a minute. And who is rock except our God? And David is essentially saying here that Yahweh protects and he could be trusted to protect and preserve his people. What about all of those instances where Israel lost on the battlefield? Right? Like not too long after Deuteronomy, yeah, I know there were a lot of successes in the book of Joshua, but there weren't only successes in the book of Joshua. Right? Think of AI. But what about what happens after the book of Joshua? What about the book of Judges? where the people were losing over and over again. What about 1 Samuel in the beginning? What happens at Shiloh? What about what happened to the rock there, George? And I would say, God doesn't shy away from what happened. Their rock did to them what He said He would do if they forsook Him. And to use the language rock in that same context, you look in the same place I just mentioned, Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord speaks of how if His people were wise... If they were wise, they would perceive the promises of judgment that he had made in his word. Remember, under the Old Covenant, 
If there was obedience to that covenant, not perfect obedience, but if they you know, did what they were supposed to do and if they fulfilled the commandments, if they offered the right offerings and so on, if they did those things, that there would be blessings for obedience, but then there would also be curses and judgments for disobedience. God would be faithful to save and he would be faithful to judge. That's the idea. Well, in Deuteronomy 32, God says that if his people were wise, they would have perceived their latter end. See that in Deuteronomy 32, 29. As the Lord spoke through Moses, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Deuteronomy 32, verse 30. So he's a rock to all who take refuge in him. But to those, especially in that Old Covenant context, to those who had forsaken him, he would be faithful to do what he said. Merciful. Yes, slow to anger, yes, but righteous to judge. I think that's important for us to understand. If you want to see a brief synopsis of that, you could reference Joshua 23, verses 9 through 13, that when the people were faithful to the covenant, their enemies would be routed. When they were unfaithful to the covenant, they would be routed by their enemies. But with that said, the idea of Psalm 18.31 stands, there is no rock except Yahweh. No rock except Yahweh. And I want to say this, again, using the imagery of rock, I want to say that the greatest danger that every human being faces in this world, and there are a lot of dangers, I know, to be concerned with. There's the dangers of illness, the dangers of totalitarianism, the dangers of violence, there's the dangers of this and that. I know that. But I think it's important for us to remember the danger, the greatest danger that any human being has to recognize is standing before a holy God without the very righteousness of Christ. Therefore, again, using the imagery of rock, therefore, I would encourage anyone who hasn't done this to do this. To run to the one who is called the chief cornerstone and the sure foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not put your trust in the idol of self-righteousness. That is a fabrication of your own mind to think that you would stand before the living God and you would be clothed with your own righteousness is only to be exposed in that moment as being a self-righteous sinner deserving of the righteous indignation of Almighty God. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not trust in your supposed merits as though it could satisfy God's wrath against your sin. Put your trust in the Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that sinners like you and I, like you and me, could be forgiven. Concerning the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, says this, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and He would be that for many, and a rock of offense, and He would be and continues to be that for many. And whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Romans 9.33, Isaiah 28.16, quoting from the Septuagint. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you never have to worry about unending shame enduring the righteous wrath of God. Run to that rock. We'll see how far we get. We'll go into verse 32. Maybe we'll make our way through verse 33 and we'll finish for today. Verse 32, this is a section where David begins to recall and revel in how God graciously equipped him. He said, it is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. Alright, first we see David affirm where his strength came from. David says that his strength came from God. He wrote, it is God who arms me with strength. God, the gracious provider that he is, armed David with strength. That word for armed could be rendered as equipped with, girded, encompassed with. And what did God equip, encompass, and gird David with? He encompassed him and girded him with strength. It's a word that could be used of many different things. It could be speaking of resources. It could even be used to speak of, say, wealth and substance. But here the implication appears to be power and ability given the context. And a New Testament Christian should read that and say, Amen. I come and agree with those words. I can say those words myself. I could use the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.13 and say, it is through Christ that I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ. Context dealing with, I could be content with little, and I could have much and not be prideful. I could be abased or abound. I can do all things through Christ. 
Remember Paul said that when no one stood by him, he said, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it's what God does for all of His people. He strengthens His people. Now I want to encourage you, because I think this is so encouraging. Purpose and usefulness for you as a Christian is always but a breath away. And I think this verse is a great vehicle to consider that. It's something, this strengthening that David speaks of, how God strengthened him and how God strengthens his people in those New Testament texts I reference. It's something that God does through the prayers of his people. Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would be, quote, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience or endurance and long suffering with joy. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be strengthened with might through His Spirit, God's Spirit, in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 Do you understand? You are but a breath away from usefulness at every moment. You could pray for a Christian who is going through a difficult season. You could pray, Father, I pray that You'd strengthen them with might through Your Spirit in the inner man. And you could have an expectation that God will strengthen such one. Yes, in His time, but you have expectation that He is going to do that. And usefulness for you is but a breath away. I find that amazing. As a matter of fact, when Mark prayed for me right before me coming here to teach, he used that kind of language that the Lord would strengthen me. And my ears were perked in a way that they weren't before in light of this text. See, even the Apostle Paul, by the way, this is just a good reminder for us. I mentioned it during the pastoral prayer, how he requested that the churches like the Colossians and the Ephesians, that they would pray for him? Like, why did he do that? Was he just being like apostolically polite? You know, hey, I know I'm the apostle, but I want to get you, you know, you average Christians involved too. Don't want to leave you with nothing to do, so why don't you pray for me? He wasn't being polite. He wasn't talking down to them. He believed that their prayers would actually be useful. That through their prayers, he would be strengthened with boldness. That through their prayers, he would actually be further enabled to clearly make known the mystery of Christ. So please, don't underestimate the power that God appropriates to the prayers of his people. But not only to the prayers of his people, to the words that his people speak. See, strengthening is not something that God does only through prayers. You can see that in Colossians 1. You can see that in Ephesians 3. It's something that he does through the words that his people speak. Paul and Barnabas, for instance, strengthened the souls of the disciples through exhortation and teaching. So what's happening in a time like this? I hope for most, if not all in this room, you find your soul being strengthened through the teaching of God's Word. Acts 14.22 would be a precedent for that. Judas and Silas, who were first century prophets, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, Judas and Silas, first century prophets, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. Words. Acts 15.32 Paul and Silas went through Syria and Sicilia strengthening the churches. Acts 15.41 Paul went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So I want you to be encouraged. I want you to rejoice in the opportunity that you have at every moment, whether it's through the words that you speak after the service or whether it's through the prayers that you pray, to be used by God to strengthen the people of God. I think that is amazing. What blessed usefulness is always but a breath away from the believer. Next, when David wrote, God makes my way perfect. Again, there's that word. There's that word. Perfect here. Mm, not the best rendering, I would say. Blameless being the idea. But I think because this is in like a military context here, that David is speaking of like success. So he makes my way essentially whole, complete, perfect in the sense of successful. But I think it's worth also being reminded, and I mentioned this, I think, a couple of messages ago, that when he talks about being blameless earlier, it's the same word that's used here, translated as perfect. So who at the end of the day made David's way whole militarily? Who's the one who ultimately made David's walk blameless with respect to, say, for instance, Saul? God. He gives the credit and the glory to the great grace of God. 
He makes my feet like the feet of deer. And He sets me on high places. Okay, so here David speaks of how God gave him agility. That's the first line. And victory is the implication of the second line. The first metaphor is with reference to a deer. You see that clearly in the text. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. I saw a video earlier this week of a, uh, a deer who had made his way in, of, of, into all things. It worked out ironically perfect in light of this text into a man's agility practice area. So the man had like certain obstacles. It was a short video. It was like about a minute and 30 seconds long. And a deer happened to make his way into this man's agility practice area where he had like, you know, like tires and different things that people can go through. And um, no, the deer was not like going through the obstacles with great ease. The deer was just walking around the area. Just walking around. And then towards the end of the video, you see the deer look at the camera. It's like staring right into the camera. And then after the deer looks at the camera, trots around, makes his way over to the fence. Now bear in mind, the fence was above the deer's head. It was like if you took the deer's head and placed another head above the deer's head, that's how high the fence was above the deer. So he trots over to the fence, takes like two steps over to the left in this really you know, graceful way, looks at it, jumps with ease that I've never, just jumps over it. Like with such agility, such ease, just springs right over. And that's a picture of what David's speaking about here. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. I was able to move with ease on the battlefield. I was able to spring forth. I had agility that I just didn't have within and of myself. I was empowered by the living God. That's the idea of what he's saying here. Whether it's like I was able to scale walls or I was able to seize mountain strongholds, to use language from Alan Ross, he can navigate through well-secured terrain. And that was the idea. I mean, if you couldn't do that on the battlefield, if you were like bumbling around on the battlefield, you wouldn't be upright on the battlefield for long. And again, David is ascribing success and agility to the living God. David didn't credit his strength training routine or good genetics. You know, I got that from Jesse, my dad. No, no he's crediting it to, at the end of the day, to the gracious empowerment of God. You could also see Habakkuk. Uh, I believe it's Habakkuk 3.19. If not, it's around there um, for a similar reference to that. And then you got this reference here in the second line of the verse, and he sets me on high places. High places. High places connote security. Being out of the reach of adversaries. Maybe the idea being, my adversaries had occupied high places, so they thought they were in a place of security, but I was able to overtake those mountain strongholds, and he set me in those high places. So it connotes, in one, sh- one way or another, victory. Victory that I couldn't have in myself, is victory that He granted me through His power. Let me just apply this to you as a Christian. You should read this and there should be a sense of excitement and anticipation. You should anticipate God to strengthen you in the areas of your life where you feel so sluggish. Where you just feel like, I just can't get out of the pit of despondency. I'm on the side of the road and I can't get out of it. You can expect Him to make your feet like the feet of the deer. I can get over this. I can get over this fence. I'm not just bound to be bound by this thing for the rest of my life. Depression or bitterness or anger or angst or anxiety. I'm just encompassed by this. No, by the grace of God. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. He can make your feet like the feet of the deer. He could give you strength to get over that. He could give you victory in areas where you just never thought you would have victory. You thought you were relegated to submission to a given sin or disposition. Don't believe that. Is not the living God more powerful than all of your fallen tendencies and proclivities? Expect by the grace of God for Him to set you on high places with regards to your personal battles against sin to experience victory. I do want to say this, though, before we close. I think this, this may be an aside, but I think it's nonetheless very relevant to this verse. When you think of him making David's feet, God making David's feet like the feet of a deer, you think of agility. Perhaps some of you are familiar with one of the sons of Zeruiah. Joab was one of them. But what about the one who was swift like a gazelle? Asahel. Remember him? I thought about that in light of this text. He was the one who was as swift as a wild gazelle, according to 2 Samuel 2.18. And you might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 2, he was chased by, or he was chasing Abner. 
Abner was the would-be kingmaker. I won't go into the whole narrative, but it is rather interesting. He was the one who basically perpetuated a civil war. Saul had died, but then he plays puppet master and he sets up this guy Ishbosheth to be king. So Abner basically instigates a civil war in Israel. And now you have this battle that happens in 2 Samuel 2, instigated by Abner, and Abner does a lot of bad stuff, and he's instigating a lot of the problems. You'd see that in 2 Samuel. But with regards to Asahel, he gave him a whole bunch of warnings. Asahel was chasing him, and Abner's basically like, I don't want to kill you. Do you, do you really want me to kill you? And Asahel has this great speed. So he's, I don't know how long this chase went on for, but apparently he gets close enough using his strength, his speed, he gets close enough to, to Abner. Abner takes his spear and all of a sudden takes the blunt end of the spear. The language could suggest it could be in the other end of the spear, but nonetheless, takes the spear, thrusts it through Asahel, and Asahel dies. Why do I mention that? Just an observation. I'm not saying the text explicitly teaches this. From my observation, at some level, Asahel's strength became a weakness. He used his great speed, and his great speed put him in a position, because he didn't use that strength wisely. It put him in a position that led to his death and downfall. The reason why I say that to you all is because sometimes, if exercised independently of God's wisdom, the strength that you have, the abilities that you have, could put you in a position that can lead to big problems. You don't want to do that. Great abilities can put us in situations that are dangerous and good. But it takes the wisdom of the living God to know how to use those rightly. So if you've been empowered by God supernaturally, or if you've been given natural ability, whatever it is, sometimes it's hard to discern the difference between the two in some respects. Make sure you use it for the glory of God. Make sure you exercise wisdom lest you put yourself in the position that you wouldn't want to be in. And I think that's a lesson that we can learn from Asahel. Well, there's more text about enablement and empowerment. David is going to continue to expound upon that. But Lord willing, we will get into that Lord willing next week. For now, let us close in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for all the blessed instruction that is provided therein. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that You've opened our eyes to know that You are the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank You that You are a shield to all who seek refuge in You. We thank You for that One who is considered by many to be a stumbling block and a rock of offense, Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ the One who fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah with respect to His first coming and His sacrifice for sins and His resurrection. Father, we pray that You would continue to multiply in this place those who are trusting in Him. Because You said whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And we know that in the most ultimate sense of that term, that they will not have to deal with that righteous indignation being poured out upon them for all of eternity in eternal conscious torment. But that wrath will have been satisfied by that rock who drank down the wrath on their behalf. Father, may You continue to empower the believers in this church. May You strengthen Your people and may You use Your people continuously to strengthen one another. And may there be hopefulness that is fanned to flame even this day. That there are walls that can be leaped over. That there is strength that can be given. And that there are high places that can be, as it were, taken for Your glory and for the good of Your people. Thank You for being such a gracious rock and for being such an empowering King. We thank You, Lord, for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.